So welcome to On The Continent, your one-stop shop for all things to do with European football. My name's Dotson Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Lars Sievertson. And on today's show, Dortmund 1, Stuttgart 5, and the fallout from it. Also, Real Madrid jammy again with two excellent goals in El Derby de Madrid. And the great French football TV scandal, if we can call it that. So let's start with uh, Dortmund. Once upon a time, everybody's favourite German team that wasn't uh, Bayern Munich. They've had something of a mare of it of late, Andy, and there's a consequence when you lose 5-1, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And um, in this case, it wasn't just the defeat, even though 5-1 at home to a promoted side, excellent as Stuttgart were, um, looks terrible on paper. But but there was more to it than that. Um, and if, if we just start by looking at the game itself, Dortmund were really terrible. I mean, how often, if you're Dortmund, do you lose 5-1 at home to a promoted side and your goalkeeper's your best player? And Roman Burki was pretty much faultless and he made a lot of good saves. It could have been way worse. They started and, the first 10, 15 minutes okay, I thought. You don't agree? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I do. Uh, and if, if it did, it disappeared from my mind pretty quickly. Um, and I think the thing that was so indicative of how bad it was collectively for Dortmund was not just that Burki was so good. And like I said, from a Stuttgart perspective, I think we'll be hearing a lot more of Silas Wamangatuka. He's terrific. And Tangi Kulibali. But... Um, the fact that when Dortmund got their equaliser and you had that brief period where you thought, oh, it might be all right for them, it was such a brilliant goal individually. That counted badly against Favre in its own way because you look at it and the, the sweep of the crossfield ball by Rafael Guerrero and the way that Gio Reyna, and what a player he is, by the way, brings it down and then just lifts it over the goalkeeper. He did the right thing. He did the it, right thing. He really did, but it was yeah. just one of those goals where you think it's actually nothing to do with the way the team functions. That is just two players showing us a little bit of brilliance and one player in particular just showing us a bit of brilliance. Keeping very cool under pressure because he doesn't know what the goalkeeper is going to do and if he misses it, it's going to look horrible. Yeah, um, but I think he's such an instinctive talent. He can process what's going on in his brain so quickly and Gio Reyn is brilliant at that anyway and I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to him. Um but the, the lack of intensity from this Dortmund side, you can forgive the odd performance that's a little bit like that at the moment, particularly in the time we're in, particularly with the sort of stress that squads are under and even the, the biggest and best squads, and they're amongst those. But um, I think with Favre, and they have had a bad run of, of late because you look at the last couple of home games, that's three home defeats in a row in the Bundesliga. And... Um, Okay, against Bayern, you can lose, and they could have got something out of that game. But um, the one before against Köln, a team that hadn't won in any Bundesliga game of any sort since March, and came and won with reasonable comfort in the end, despite having you know when when you look at you know we're talking about going into beyond the results and into what was actually involved in those games, that incredible winless run of Köln. They were terrible in pretty much all of those games. They deserved to get nothing out of, of most of them. And yet they came at Dor came to Dortmund and played really well and kept them at arm's length so brilliantly. So 
I just think more and more of the evidence has been piling up. And I think you look at the run at the end of last season where they had embarrassing home defeats to, to Mainz, uh, Hoffenheim on the, the, the final day of the season where they lost 4-0. And fair enough, it didn't make any difference on their league position then. But the impression is so much part of it, especially when there's such a limited window for you to catch Bayern. You have to feel as if you're building towards something. You have to feel as if there's a plan. And it's always felt... I think in over a year now that Lucien Favre, who has done a lot of good work at Dortmund, is kind of holding back this set of players, or was, I should say now, holding back this set of players. Someone described it brilliantly on Twitter when they, um, someone who covers Dortmund, when they said um, there's a squad that's built to win games 5-3 who the coach wants to win games 1-0. And I, I think that's a, a huge part of it. And you, you know, you expect... And part Ouch. of it is... A, but well, part of it is a hangover from the Jurgen Klopp era. And, you know, I, I know you feel quite strongly about this, Lars, the, the idea that um, Dortmund should play in a certain way with a certain spirit. And they're just not capable of doing that under five. It's, not, it's a team that could press but doesn't press. It's a team that could take the ball by the horns but doesn't take the ball by the horns. Yeah, I, th- I think that's very relevant because we go, when we go back to when they were so successful under Jurgen Klopp, part of that success when Klopp... Um, would I'm sure would insist. Uh, I mean, you hear him speak on the Damson show. They had that. You know, we were very lucky in, in terms of the generation of players they had and the the group they were able to assemble for almost no money at all. And it was a sort of once in a lifetime thing. But you know, there was a huge part of that was that Jurgen Klopp really tapped in to the fact that this is a very emotional club. It's a very emotional fan base. It's uh, people for whom. You know, you know, it's an area where they used to be, you know, known for the for the breweries, but the breweries have all been sold to foreign companies now, and the football club is sort of the thing they have left to, to, yeah. to shape their identity around. Sounds like the Liverpool of Germany. It's a, that's, a, that's a good comparison, I think. It's one of the reasons why Klopp has been such an amazing fit at Liverpool, because he can push on a lot of the same emotional buttons, I think. And, yeah. and, and Klopp has argued that it's probably, you know, the most emotional place, football-wise, in, in all of Germany, aside from possibly Schalke. Uh, and... Um, I, and I think you can exploit those forces. You can you can get that. And then there was this sort of thing when Jurgen Klopp's Dortmund were at their best. Is that I think they really did feed off the energy from the crowd and everything around it, and that sort of informed the way they play. I mean, when they were always running a hundred miles an hour somewhere, whether it was towards the goal or towards the opponent, or you know, they had all that behind them. And and Favre, by comparison, like there's no one who thinks Favre is a bad manager. I don't, I'm sure there's no one in the Dortmund hierarchy who thinks he's a bad manager. It was one of those when it, when you sack a coach, very often you write like, "Oh, it's a, with a heavy heart we have to do." This. I thought those words were very genuine in this case. I think he he's generally well regarded, but he's a completely different person, and he's a completely different manager in terms of how he wants his teams to play. Uh, much more reserved, um, much more um, controlled. I guess is a word you could use, and we've. It's, it's, feels like the fifth time I'm on this podcast and we're discussing whether Favre is a good fit for Dortmund. And we've mm. always said, no, he's not really, is he? But the results have been good enough, uh, you know, to, to keep him there and to, to build, I think, a feeling that this, it could work. And that, it's a, but, but it feels inevitable. And it's, totally. it's so telling that in going into this season, everyone knew his contract was up at the end of the season, but no one thought there was any chance he was going to get renewed. Like there was no discussion about that really. I've not seen anywhere anyone thinking, yeah, they gotta gotta hand Favre a new contract. Like no, no one was thinking about that. Everyone knew this would be the last season. Well, I think. The, the the club had a few tentative discussions, like even going back a few weeks with him about what the parameters of extending that that agreement might be. 
but I think it's simply, and Dortmund fans and match going Dortmund fans will really hate this um, because one of their bugbears or some of them is the fact that they feel that the club has, some of them feel the club has maybe evolved into a sort of a mini Bayern, you know, where success is, is, is so important and success is maybe more important than the spirit of the club. But the fact is, I think they're in a very similar situation to Bayern going into last season, where they go into the season with a coach that not everyone at the club really believes in, just as Bayern did with Niko Kovac, because they don't feel there's anyone better out there to replace them. They don't want to make a change for the sake of it. But just like with Bayern, and I'm not suggesting that he's going to turn into a Hansi Flick-type figure, but Edin Terzic, the... um, assistant to Favre, who nevertheless wasn't part of Favre's inner circle, had history. Of course, he was the assistant to Slavin Bilic, Bajiktas and West Ham. Mm. And before that, he had the connection with Dortmund, which is the most important thing um, because he was a scout at Dortmund and he worked with the youth academy when Jurgen Klopp was still there. And I think the fact that um, it's, it's not just an assistant taking over to assure the interim as you have in a lot of cases where a coach is sacked it's, it's thought and they've given him the job till the end of the season of course which implies that they might have someone particular in mind that they want to have a go at then when they, they become available it's the idea that it's someone who's enough of a break from Favre to be viable and Terzic is, is, is what 25 years younger than Lucien Favre and has got a very different way of looking at things. It was really interesting it, when they had his introductory press conference with him and the sporting director, Michael Sork, on Monday. And they used the words uh, emotionality quite a lot. You know, <laughs> I think it's, we it's, get that. Exactly. Yes. It's got to be about emotion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, was, it was one of those things. That if you placed it, say, in a, a British context, and we'd be talking about passion and heart, mm-hmm. And people would take the piss, I think, a bit. But it's something that's really important at Dortmund. And the idea, not just that age-wise he's closer to to the players, but the fact is that maybe he's a bit more he's a bit more Dortmundy. I think he played a very good line by saying, "Oh, this this is an incredible day for me. I remember the first time I came to the stadium when I was nine years old, and the clubs always live with me." and that sort of stuff matters to them. Well, yeah. But why didn't Favre get that, though, Lash? Because you would have thought that that's a, a simple thing to understand. Emotionality, even yeah, I can understand People are it. different, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's uh-huh. just uh, I've always really sort of hated this idea that there are such a thing as good and bad uh, managers and that you can rate people, you know, be it from 1 to 20 in football manager or from, you know, whatever the scale is in, in, in FIFA, you know, 1 to 10. Yeah. You know, people are just different. People are good at different things. And there are a ton of clubs where Lucien Favre would be perfect and do a tremendous job. And I'm sure whoever he goes to next will, will get a very good manager and will do well. I've no doubt of that. But, it, but, this, but, there are, but I think also with Dortmund, you've got to zoom out a little bit and look at, you know, what is this team and this club's strength right now? And I know, Andy, you, you've pointed out a few times that they have spent a bit of money and it's assigned a few, you know, they've, they've brought in Hummels and, you know, you've got Emre Can there and you've got Witzel, you know, you've got some experienced players. But if you look at this, what is the great strength of this team? It is this sort of phalanx of extraordinary young talents that they have. You know, our, our boy Erling Haaland and uh, Gio Reyna and Bellingham and all and Sancho, you know. And, and, and what's the task of this club? What, what are they trying to achieve? Well, they're trying to overhaul Bayern. 
So the job here really is to take hold of this group of extraordinary young players with, with a pretty good supporting task and, and fire them up as much as you can. Just point them in the direction of Bayern Munich and just unleash them, you know, you know mm. and, and just really sort of do something, I guess. I mean, there's a reason Pochettino gets mentioned because they, they look at what Pochettino's Tottenham did or nearly did a few years with a fairly young squad that was just fearless and flying at everyone. And, and you know, it, it, that's, that should be what, what this team should be about. And that's not going to be a thing with Lucien Favre. Well, I don't, don't, don't mean this season, but in general, to, to, to unleash the sort of the, the, the young guns of this team. And Favre doesn't really unleash things. I mean, he, he improves them, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure he's a good technician. But he a puts good, a good, system in, doesn't A good, he? A good he, technician. Is, isn't um, Favre about the system? And I wonder whether all yeah. of this emotional and, and also stuff the, can fit into a system. And it's also, all a bit uh, precise, isn't it? And also uh, the coaching, I'm sorry, because he's, he's known for like doing these sort of small details on the training ground. Like, you know, if you, if you move a little bit different and if you have your arm in a slightly different position when you receive the ball and all, all these sort of little things, he does really well. Yeah, and the senior players have really lost confidence in that. I, I I think it was interesting hearing after the Stuttgart game, Matt Hummels talking about, well, he says, we, we try to play a lot of stuff really precisely and it's high risk, small reward. So it, it, it completely... That was really an interesting uh, comment. Then, yeah, and it completely because... kills our defensive shape and, um, you, you know, you have to have room to, to flow. I, th I think was what he was he was coming into. But he's not against the high risk. Obviously, high risk is what gets Bayern where they are and other teams where they are in Europe at the moment. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. The, it's the payoff, the reward that comes as a result of that. What is it worth risking uh, your chances in a game for? It, obviously, high risk works when you're in front of goal. Yeah. High risk works there, but it doesn't necessarily work in defence, does it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think especially if you're someone who's a ball-playing centre-back who's getting on a bit, <laughs> who's approaching your 32nd birthday, that's something that's very germane to, to your personal um, well-being as, as well as that of the team. I, th I think that's absolutely right. Um, but the fact that Terzic has a different view of football, I think that's going to be very interesting to see how that works out because... Um, they had their first game under him at Werder Bremen um, on Tuesday and they won just about against the Werder side that are really lacking in confidence at, at the moment. Dortmund started well and then made a little bit of a mess of things and again it was Manuel Akanji giving the ball away in a daft position that, that, that led to the uh, Mervalt equaliser. They, they got there in the end and, and that will be a little boost to them. But they've got hugely important game on Friday night away at Union Berlin, who are playing pretty well at the moment. And then they have a cup game next week at, at Braunschweig. And then it's Christmas. And I, I don't, you can't even call it a winter break this year because you think of Germany for its like nice, civilised, three, four-week winter break. Yeah, everyone um, goes to Marbella. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> which everyone has used as an excuse to go training in Qatar or yeah, Marbella. Yeah, yeah. But, but the fact is... That won't happen this year because everything's so condensed. Got the, like a week. The Bundesliga restarts on the second of January last, yeah. which is amazing. So if you're Terzic, what you really want is, I think, introducing full-on pressing when Favre is a really non-pressy coach is quite difficult to do because you need a whole new level of conditioning to to do that. When, when have they got time to a do that mini preseason, which you'd really need to be able to press effectively? I think. And B, just really get to grips with your idea on the on the training field. I think that that is really, really tough when you look at the schedule this year. So I'll be interested to see how they, they, they get on with that. But I think the sense is that Terzic is there 
really to steady the ship, to make sure they stay top four in a competitive league, to make sure the players are a bit happy, to make sure that those players have an indication that the club knows what they want going forward and is going to find the right direction. Now, of, of course, the big favourite, and we've heard people mention Pochettino, Hasenhutl, the big favourite at this point is Marco Rosa, the Borussia Mönchengladbach coach, who would be... It, I'm led to believe he would be relatively open to it next summer. It would be a step up from him, from Mönchengladbach. And he's someone with a philosophy. He's a bit more alpha than Lucien Favre. I think that's quite important. He's a bit younger as well. And it would be a challenge for him to see if he can bring his style to a slightly better set of players. Not that Gladbach don't have good players. They clearly do. But this is a step up, both in levels of what he can achieve and the actual expectation of what Lars were talking about. Because, you know, Dortmund aren't quite... They're in this, this weird sort of netherworld where, as you say, I mean, you came out and said straight away they're not going to catch Bayern. But also, if you've got not, those... Not, not in the strength of the performance against Stuttgart. They're not going to no, overturn I'll, anybody. Well, well, no, no, they're, 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 they're not, you know? not going to finish in the top 15 in the league in, right. <laughs> on, on the basis of that. But, you know, you know they're, they're caught in this, this weird netherworld where they're not quite in touch in distance of Bayern but they can consistently finish second and where do you go with that you know you've got to find a way to build on that and you've got to find a way that you're ready to receive if Bayern do slip and I think especially in this season where Bayern who looked by miles the best team in Europe when you look at them winning the Champions League and now last when you look at the schedule when you look at the fact that they've had a few injuries if Dortmund had been a little bit more ready, they would have been ready to receive that opportunity to to, to maybe have a proper go at them, and, wouldn't they? And that'll be the frustration, the same way there was frustration that they weren't able to capitalise um, when Bayern were coached by Niko Kovac and were less good yeah. for it. Uh, there was an opportunity there for them to do it. And we, we talk about this a lot in in Spain with regards to Atleti, and we're going to get to that later, you know, when you're in that position as a team, that where you're you're always chasing a team that's a lot wealthier than you, you have to be there when they mess up. Like, when they have a bad season, that you, you have to take that chance, and they haven't been able to to do that. I think Marco Ross is really interesting as a prospect, and it's not... Um, so, so someone who played under Jurgen Klopp in his day and shares a lot of the same... Uh, a lot of the same uh, uh, ideas of football. And if you look at... I ha I have this theory, um, which I often refer to as the ex-girlfriend principle uh, in football. If whenever um, a managerial reign ends badly, uh, uh, it's it's like in your personal life. Like if you have a relationship and it, it doesn't end well, it ends in a bad way. You, you see, you'll see this with your friends. Very often, the next person that they're with you know, has a lot of the qualities that were perceived to be lacking in the, the previous incumbent. <laughs> That's something that happens an awful lot in life. You, you'll notice. I mean, I think, I think everyone here is in a pretty stable place in their personal life. So I'm not, not an expert. So it's not relevant thing. to us. We have to look around. It, it is something that happens an awful lot. And it happens an awful lot in football. If you, if you look at all the sort of... Uh, I mean, it's a very different dynamic if you have a manager and it goes well and the manager leaves you for, for someone, you know, for a wealthier club, which, which, well can, which, which can happen in your personal life as well. Then the next one, you're often looking for someone who had a lot of the same qualities, you know, that, that, that also can happen in your personal life. But um, if it ends badly, just look around all the times clubs change managers after a bit of a car crash. 
the next guy they get almost always has like the qualities they felt were lacking in the previous one. And if you look at a list of people, Guardiola to Ancelotti at Bayern, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're knackered. <laughs> you know, this are it, 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 it's very, very, um, it's a good theory, uh, I think, having made up the theory. Uh, but if you look at the list of candidates <laughs> that Dortmund are looking at now, you mentioned Pochettino, Hasenhutl, uh, Marco Rose as the, the front runner, also Jesse Jesse Marsh from uh, RB Salzburg has been mentioned. Mm. These are all high pressing guys. You know, these yeah. are all you know, get at them. You know, very passionate sort of ah, let's go type of guys and I think that tells you a lot about what they felt was missing uh, under Lucien Favre So, Lars, you're like a soothsayer. Beware the Ides of March. You've already introduced, in a way, our next conversation. Um, I think that Lars is absolutely right. Uh, Atletico had the opportunity uh, to do one on Real Madrid. Real Madrid got jammy again, although they were two excellent goals. I don't know how you can say that they were jammy. And they, well, they did the honours on Atletico. Do you, do you want to explain how you think they did that, how they achieved that, coming off the back of a difficult Champions League and um, and, and domestic challenges? Well, they've had a real turnaround now in a couple of weeks, and it's, it's, it's again, worth taking a slight step back and look at what, what could have been the situation for them. I mean, they were at a place a couple of weeks ago where uh, they could have gone out to the Champions League group stage for the first time in their history, and if they'd have lost this, I mean, Atleti would have been, what, nine points ahead of them with a game in hand, so effectively 12 points ahead of them in the league. So that's out of the Champions League, first time ever in the group stage, and their title chance would be gone. So the season would have kind of been over, over the course of two games. And uh, and Zidane is getting asked, you know, he's he, before the Sevilla game, he was asked, you know, are you no longer untouchable? Before the Gladbach game, is asked, could this be your last game? And and after Atleti, I think he was asked... Break it to me gently. Could, could, could this be your best ever week as a manager? I mean, that's the sort of situation they've had now. So it's extraordinary how they rallied. But I think it's worth noting with uh, with Real Madrid and this group of Real Madrid players, I mean, this is a group of players, I think, who's always been better at raising themselves for the really big occasions than they've been at doing it every single week. I think that's fair to say. I mean, before last season, they'd gone seven years... Uh, and the core of the squad has been there throughout that time. You know, Ramos, Varane, Benzema, Modric, Marcello. They've gone seven years in which they've won the league once, but they've won four Champions Leagues. Now, that's a bit weird. It's, it's a bit unusual, but it tells you... I think it tells you something about the yeah. about where they're at as a team. I mean, they, they are... When it really comes to it, I mean, they react and they come together and they rally and they can do these things, but they're maybe not always as good at doing it consistently. So they're good in the knockout competitions, but not in the long. Yeah, and and this week was almost like a (laughs) sort of knockout moment for Zidane, I guess. Yeah, and and you saw them come together. It's it's funny because it seems weird after four such big wins, because of course they've beaten Athletic this week as well now. Uh, uh, having beaten Sevilla, Mönchengladbach to go through in the Champions League, beat Atletico in the derby and then beat Athletic, you, you look at that on paper and you think, perfect, there's nothing you can do with that. But having watched the game against Athletic, I thought, you know, there's still some question marks over Zidane, which I, I don't know, maybe you can't say out loud at the, at the moment, 
But bear in mind, against an athletic team who were really good on the night, um, Raul Garcia was sent off after 13 minutes. And yet still at the end, Athletic had the chance of a, a point. There was a great save by Courtois and uh, then Benzema goes up the other end to, to finish the game off and another two goals for him. But th the interesting thing about that, Zidane didn't really rotate after those three huge games and particularly after the game against Atletico, which you think is really physically taxing. Only, ch only player he changed is Valverde for Casemiro and Casemiro is banned. So he didn't have the choice of keeping him in. So he probably would have kept the, 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 the same 11. But when we go back to the Atletico game, this is Real Madrid's kind of game. Because not only, as Lars says, can they rise to the big occasion, but Zidane, we do have this, this unconscious bias of what he's like as a coach based on what he is as a player more so than pretty much any other coach or slash player out there, I would what do you say. Mean? Well, because we think it's Zidane, it's Real Madrid, therefore it's beauty. It's never beauty when they're doing well. It's effective. And if you look at the fact that Atletico haven't beaten them in the league in five years now, and it's because on any given day, Real Madrid are better at being Atletico than Atletico are. And that's exactly what they were I think, in, in the derby. You know, you look at that that goal, but not really the, the sort of goal, that the, the opening goal by Casemiro, not the sort of goal that you expect Atletico to concede. A free header from a set piece when Atletico conceded two goals in La Liga all season going into that game, not the sort of goal you expect them to, to give away. And they were the team that harried and pressed and made it difficult and did all those nasty athletic things that you would expect them to be able to do in that you know you get to the end of it Atleti are, are flustered they can't really get a grip on the game that when they do have opportunities like when it was still 1-0 in the second half and Thomas Lamar had pretty much an open goal and he managed to stick it in the, the, the side netting they weren't able to seize the moment in the same way that, that Real Madrid were and by the end of it you had Joao Felix sulking in in the stand after he'd substituted Simeone lamenting afterwards that he'd, he'd picked the wrong team. I do think that the athletic side of it is part of it because Atletico had had a very, very difficult away game in the Champions League at Salzburg. A Salzburg game, again, uh, a Salzburg team, again, that really went after them and made it tough and Atletico put a lot into that game. Whereas, you know, the Champions League game that you're talking about last for Real Madrid that was so big, Mönchengladbach just didn't turn up, really. And it was a game in which Real Madrid were able to be a little bit more expressive simply because they were playing an adversary that were frightened. But I think with Zidane, we're not quite getting to the Solskjaer zone, but we're definitely at that point where the results say more than the actual performance. I, I don't know if people even register the performances a lot of the time. You've got to give him his dues, though. If he pulled one out and it was a, a tense moment, he was under pressure himself as a manager, uh, amongst other things, do you not have to sort of say... Yeah. And, and when Andy says he played Atletico in, in their own game at their own game and succeeded. Do you not have to give props to the coach for that? Then? Yeah, yeah, to an extent. And I think they were very successful in, in, in pinning, pinning back Atleti's wing-backs, which, which meant the system didn't quite work. And 
Modric and Cross ended up having a lot of space to, to to pull the strings there, which is never a good thing for the opponent. And then Modric, by the way, oh my god, first half against Gladbach. I don't know if you saw that game in its entirety. Yeah. Good lord, that he was that was just great. I mean, as as one of the most you know great players to look at, just someone to watch what he does on the pitch. He was completely sort of rolling back the ears, as the saying goes. It felt like they'd had him in the oxygen tank. It was didn't extraordinary. It, it was it as was... opposed to Luis Suarez for Atletico, <laughs> which felt like, look, mate, what are you doing on the pitch? He's lost all his pace, and this was one of my favourite players before. He yeah. was in the derby. He was the player that Barcelona thought they were getting rid of, rather than the player that Atletico Madrid thought they were receiving. Yeah, if you yeah. see what. Yeah, I mean. no, yeah. pardon the digression, but I have like. A, Sorry about that. No, no, just for for Modric is one of those guys who, one of my favorite players ever, just to watch in the flesh. Because if you watch games when he plays, he's one of those players you can just you. He's one of few players you'd player cam. Like I'd happily just watch <laughs> everything he does in a game because he's so elegant and just. And it was great to see him back uh, towards his. Uh, uh, his best. No, but I think what I worry a little bit about Atleti here is there a chance that Simeone now sort of just reverts to type having been stung in the derby? Because they've been playing a little bit more in a slightly more attacking manner this season. You know, with, with Suarez there and with Joao Felix uh, taking on more and more responsibility and they've been pushing people further up the pitch and it's been really working for them so far. And now they get this, you know, pretty significant setback. So you think they need to not panic yeah. Off the back of it. Yeah, I think they, I mean, I think there was a bit in our notes there about, you know, what, what did they need to fix to be serious title contenders? I don't think they need to fix anything. I think they mm. need to keep doing exactly what they've been doing this season. You, you lost the derby to Real Madrid, it happens. Your record this season is still, you know, the, the record is still 1-8, drawn 2, lost 1. That That's good. In a, in, yeah. a, in a year where Real Madrid are still not at their best, like you say, the performances were not amazing. But I think when it's a week... When it's when you have two games to save your season, basically the poor performances don't matter. Like you need to get the win. Um, but it is but, an but, issue, but isn't it? They're still good they... enough. Just do exactly what they've been doing so far this season. I think that would, that can be enough to win the title. But that's that's the hard bit, isn't it? Because they definitely psyched themselves out of the derby, didn't they? Yes. But my concern is that Simeone looks at this and freaks out and is like, "Oh no, we need to go back to <laughs> well, we go need back to, to bunker what? down." Go back to what? When <laughs> to you be, said revert to type, what did you mean? Uh, be more defensive. I mean, because they have been they have been. Uh, playing in a slightly more attacking manner this season, they have. I mean, they've got Ferreira Carrasco is playing left wing back. For God's sake! Mm. I mean, this is the I, this used to be one of my sort of stock lines about Ferreira Carrasco and and Simeone and and everything is about how and I thought it was really funny that when the Atletico signed him, Simeone didn't trust him to play on the wing, so he had to play him up front because he he didn't do enough defensive work <laughs> when they were playing four four two. Simeone didn't trust Ferrer Carrasco to play as a winger because he didn't do enough defensive work so he had to use him as a striker whereas Roberto Martinez used him as a wingback for Belgium and I always thought that was a great example of the differences between those two coaches <laughs> but now here he is playing wingback opposite of Trippier on the other side now obviously Ferrer Carrasco might have grown up a bit I mean I think he's, he's a slightly different character than he was a few years ago but, but, but they are attacking more you know you, 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 you've got is Suarez and Joao Felix up front. I mean, I think Simeone probably wouldn't play two types of two guys like that who who are of those those characteristics a few years ago. My concern would be that he goes like, "Oh no, this this went wrong. We we got to bunker down a bit more and, and play like Llorente up front on his own to run around and kick people." Give him and a just... call. Janine, Donadoni, Obrovsko, Oretu, Okirachi, Oro.
Okay, there's one more conversation we should have, and this is, um, you could argue, is a non-footballing conversation to me. I, I get frustrated to talk about TV companies and their rights over football, but in France, this has been a huge issue, Andy. You know the French game very well. A TV company comes in and offers to pay over the moon, over the odds for TV rights, and then it all ends in tears. You're right. It was an extraordinary amount of money, and I say was for a reason, because uh, Media Pro, the um, Spanish part owned by Chinese investors company that um, came into the French market and bought the large bulk of the TV rights for, for Ligue 1, um, they've now rescinded their contract with uh, the French League, and what, we're three months into the season? Um, I mean, it's, it's been coming for a while. Um, because they they said when it got to the second tranche of TV money that they weren't going to pay it that they need to go they needed to go to court in in Nanterre um, on the outskirts of Paris to uh, discuss um, a renegotiation of the contract and obviously when you use that kind of approach um, especially so um, soon into a, a, a new deal the league are going to react with prejudice as, as as they're entitled to do they did that and from that point that they weren't going to accept less than their money, um, that the relationship was doomed. And so so it's proved. Um, they were due over the next four years, what, 830 million euros a, a year. And um, now, uh, basically, Media Pro are going to give over um, 100 million euros as a sort of, you know, golden Goodwill goodbye. Gesture. <laughs> goodwill ge- that's what that, that's what companies always say when they're stitching you up don't they it's a goodwill gesture and um so uh the, the lfp the french league need a new tv deal pretty quickly i think most people expect it to be canal plus the historic broadcaster but obviously they feel that they weren't treated fairly during the pitch for the riots two years ago and they know that the league are over a barrel so they're not going to offer straight away and they're going to offer a little bit less than market rate, I would suspect. Although they do hold some of the rights, so they're already an investor in, in the French League. It's it's a mess. And I, th- I think there are a lot of warning signs about Media Pro in the first place. Not only their reputation, but also the fact that a lot of people were concerned that they were coming from um, into a market that they weren't familiar with. Um, more people were concerned that they didn't really get across how they were actually going to broadcast the rights until quite late. You know, they only said quite late that they were going to set up their own television channel. In an effort to build public confidence, they bought the name Telefoot, which became their channel. Like Telefoot is a famous um, free access TV program on Sunday mornings in, in France. So it's basically, if say, Dotton Enterprises decided to buy the rights for the, for the Premier League, and you bought the name match of the day to, 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 and, and called your channel that so that people would think, yeah, there's a brand that I can trust. Even if it is 25 euros a month, which is way too much. But of, of course, there's, it's not just the fact that the league have a problem and, and I know Lars will come on to that and the effect that it could have on, on, on French football going forward because there are a lot of worried clubs out there. Um, but, but let's let's spare a moment, uh, thought for our colleagues for a moment, uh, like the the people who are working for uh, for Telefoot who are going to be left with nothing. Who were just told last week that the the channel is 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 ceasing to to broadcast live, um, and 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 it's it's all over. 
In fact, there was a brilliant moment um, after the Paris Saint-Germain-Lyon game on uh, Sunday, Sunday night where they always have a link up with the coaches from studio to Parc de France in this case and um, ask, ask them a few questions. And one of the pundits uh, said to Thomas Tuchel, I want to ask you, what's more likely that Messi joins Paris Saint-Germain or Media Pro actually pay up? <laughs> what did he answer? Uh, Tuchel, looked, Tuchel looked really sheepish. And the presenter said to him, you can go now if you want, Thomas. <laughs> but, Lash, this is a case of, um, you know, they say famously that, uh, what is it, bullshit walks. But no, it doesn't. It talks. Money talks and bullshit walks. But here it's money talks and bullshit talks if you throw enough money up front. Well, no, if you make the I sums mean, big enough, yeah. large enough, you can be bullshitting and people believe you because you're talking about twice as much money as the previous um, holders of the rights. Yeah, and I think there's an interesting thing here, which is that apparently... Um, the, the Media Pro had tried to do a similar deal with Serie A at some point, and and that fell through because they couldn't like provide the financial guarantees if they wanted <laughs> due diligence. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, if, 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 I, if I was the owner of a French club, I'd be pretty obviously angry with with the whole Media Pro. But I'd be really angry with the league about this mm. because French the French league famously, I mean, the financial controls that clubs are forced to obey by are the strongest anywhere in Europe, right? Yeah. And there, there's really, I, I spoke to someone who used to used to work for a French club who's really like, they're so strict when it comes to demonstrating that you can afford to fund your, your program for the year. You have to show, like, mm. you actually have the money to pay your players and, you know, that the, the sporting, um, the, the financial side of it is, yeah, the, the controls are so, so strict, much yeah, more are. so than anywhere else. In which else. case, what, what went wrong? It begs well, the question, no, but this it? is the bizarre thing. Like, from the club's perspective, they're forced to document everything so very, very clearly and mm. show exactly how they're going to do things, now they're going to pay things, now everything's going to work. Whereas the club themselves have signed this deal with the company who immediately were not able to keep up their end of the things. So they they appear to have no no similar sort of... Yeah. There's, a, there's a bitter irony to isn't it, it? Is, is, isn't there? But I think it's interesting as well when you look at um, something that's really damaged Liga and, of course, safety first before football in the times that we're living in. But when Liga came to a stop in March, um, the league didn't uh, connect with the government in the way it might have been, in the way it might have done to get competition going again. If you look at Javier Tebas, the president of La Liga, and how he was on the phone to people in government every day to make sure La Liga was going to get going again and it was all going to start again. Well, part of that is that the LFP is a weak institution, as I've said before, with a, a lot of issues. And part of that is because for them, this season starting was a lot more important than last season ending, exactly because of that huge... TV contract that you were talking about. And LFP is, is the French uh, football The French League, yeah. yeah. Um, what's going to be the consequence of this, though? That, that's the real question, isn't it? Like? Yeah, it'll, be bad for, it'll be bad for a lot of clubs. I mean, they, as one club owner put it, I mean, we're not, we don't have any people in the stands and we're not getting the TV money and we can't do any corporate stuff. So can someone please explain to me how we're meant to pay our people? You know, there's yeah. no... The LA, the league has taken up a loan to 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 pay out some money, uh, but it's going to be a huge problem. And I think 
there, there are some clubs who, who are going to be in a very bad way. And uh, ho- hopefully, with, with something being sorted out with Canal Plus, there will be some money coming in. But Of course, you know, be, the, they've the, got the assets in their players, though. Will yeah. we see a wholesale kind of sell, sell of it's players? Possible. I'm particularly interested in the situation at Lille, uh, which seems to be coming to a head uh, with the with the possibility of the club being almost like repossessed by uh, by the, the people backing them. Good, good old Elliot management. Good old Elliot getting involved again. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, uh, but for Lille, I mean, the idea of them selling off assets in January would be the very definition of a false economy, surely, because they're right near the top of the table. Yeah, are they are top to, at the moment, yeah. And, and yeah, and are, it's very tight up there, but they're certainly on track to, to qualify for the Champions League again. And yeah. surely for them, the best way to raise revenue in the medium term is to keep going and doing what they're doing. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, if they can hold off for six months and hold on to... Um, Renato Sanchez and uh, Celic and all those other players, Mike Magnon, is, is, is super important for them. I agree. And um, th- they've, they've had financial issues for a while. And uh, Gerard Lopez is only just the, the, the president who will be leaving, it looks like. Um, he's, he's, he's had to move a few bits to, to get it working. When he was coming in, because he almost bought Marseille and ended up getting Lille instead, I think people thought he was a super rich guy rather than someone who had some money and was good at persuading other people to part with theirs and someone who was a a, a, a front man for, for other money. Um, but um, it's, it, it, is, it is tough for them. Um, I suppose other clubs might be in the same situation in terms of selling players on as well. I mean, they always have to sell a few in the summer. And, you know, I'd expect them to do it again next time. I agree with Lars. I think they have to hold off going forward. Um, but, you know, it's, it's going to be a really strange couple of, of, of months in Liga Because, of course, at the moment, at the time of recording, you have Lille top, Lyon after that win at the Parc des Princes second, and Paris Saint-Germain third. Would, uh, and of course Marseille a couple of games behind and tremendously they, good form as well Marseille. yeah if, if Marseille were to win those games in hand they would go top and, and the current financial climate if it gets worse it does play against competition which would be a real shame so we ask both of you to offer us a game of the week each should we start with the man with the girlfriend theory of football, yeah. Lars Severson. Well, the ex the ex girlfriend theory. Yeah, yeah. Well, there can only be one answer this weekend, uh, which is very much uh, uh, Bayer Leverkusen versus Bayern Munich uh, Saturday at five thirty. Top of the table clash in the Bundesliga. And I was kind of, I mean, I understand because Lucien Favre got sacked. I was hoping before I heard that news that obviously meant that was going to be a subject for this episode. But I knew I was doing OTC this week. I was really hoping we could do a whole sort of Peter Bosch section. You know, do we have to take Leverkusen and Peter Bosch seriously? I think maybe we do. Yeah. Top of the, top of the table, 11 games, uh, undefeated now. You know, Peter Bosch, this figure of fun, this ludicrous man, is is, is having tremendous success. And it, it could be the real thing, possibly. Or they might get tonked 7-0 by Bayern. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that could also happen. That would be very much in uh, in keeping with the Peter Bosch's Leverkusen, this as sounds, we know and love them. This sounds sure. very much to me as if you're signing up for the OTC goals guarantee last well, <laughs> What I but enjoyed was I the, way that you, <laughs> the way you built them up. And then that has been always the yeah. thing. Uh, with Peter Bosch and his time in Germany is that 
you know, his teams play very good football. They're going to get tonked. Occasionally, though, yeah, because he's a very forward-thinking <laughs> manager. He gives the players a lot of freedom, and he's, he's a great fun in that regard. But they can be infuriatingly uh, bad at defending occasionally. But, you know, they're undefeated so far this season. So given their due, and they're playing Bayern this weekend, should be really fascinating. Yeah, Andy, you've got to follow that, mate. Uh, so you've got to set, <laughs> set up your game of the week and then make sure you tonk them down. I'm tempted to go for Lille versus Paris Saint-Germain because it's Sunday night is the, the big one in France top of the league against the champions will Neymar and his gammy ankle make it well he might do because it wasn't as bad as, as, as people first thought or feared when he was sobbing on the stretcher but I'm going to go for the Sunday night one in Serie A instead Lazio versus Napoli Lazio been very up and down a team who've really struggled from um, the, the busy schedule and just about got through their, their, their Champions League group after their, their brush with COVID. Uh, Napoli, this is the sort of game that if they're going to be a, a serious contender, and of course they closed a bit last weekend with Milan only drawing, th- this is a game that they have to go and win. And um, they're, they're a little bit unpredictable under Gattuso. I think he's done an absolutely tremendous job there, bearing in mind what sort of shape they're in when they took over. And all the more to show how well he's doing. He's getting a tune out of Herving Lozano. A goal and assist last week and against Sampdoria. So, yeah, watch this, I say. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.